All right, welcome back, everybody, to the Uniquely Better Life podcast. My name is Chase Cotton. I'm the community director here at the Willow Center in Brownsburg, Indiana, and I am your host. This is episode eight. Last month, we talked about navigating difficult social situations in recovery, and this month, we're diving in more specifically to one of those difficult social situations, which is explaining one's addiction history to employers. I'm excited to have my new friend, Rachel, here to share some wisdom and experience in regards to that context. Before we dive in, we'll play our intro music, and then we'll get started. Let's go ahead and dive in. Rachel, thank you for being here. We're so excited to have you. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and just give us some context. Share a little bit about your story and background. Awesome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I am Rachel Rawlings uh, and I am... So let me tell you, I I came to join you today because, uh, well, my story, I've been a nurse for 16 years. Uh, I started off uh, at Methodist in the neonatal ICU and... uh, that is where my story began. <laughs> and uh, I share that always. Uh, so that was the neonatal ICU where in 2006, in September, there were heparin overdoses. Oh, wow. uh, so uh, we had, uh, well, we definitely experienced loss. Uh, and sure. there was a huge process there. Um, and I was very young. Mm-hmm. Uh 22 turning 23 the year that it happened and I was actually 21 when I started in the NICU uh, which was in June of 05 so the timing there was it was very early in my career and uh, I say openly now I definitely did not have the coping skills (laughs) to to deal with that I don't know many 21 year olds who do and I'm not that far removed right (laughs) right um and then you know on the family side my parents are wonderful you know so I always share that um They've been married. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my ACE score would have been relatively low until that point, for sure. For those who don't know what ACE means, that's yeah. Adverse Childhood Experiences, which is a way of measuring childhood trauma that has different health predictors as an adult. Continue. Thank you. Um, so I, I always like to give them a lot of credit there. You know, um, I was very blessed and I'm still grateful, you know, for them. Uh, so I stayed there uh, for about five years, and I absolutely loved that work. Um, definitely more good than bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of what I embraced positively was uh, the bereavement and loss side of that. And yeah. I loved uh, the acuity part of it. So I experienced, you know, a lot of loss through through that outlet at work. Sure. Um, and I kept basically going on that. I like sicker patients. And I had a brief stint where I went to Lifeline um, Neopedes. Okay. And I was very green. I should have never been there. Yeah. <laughs> on my side, I was just, you know, uh, I think absolutely uh, 
from their side and my side, uh, I just needed to be a little bit older and experienced. Sure. <laughs> uh, and under your belt. absolutely. I think I was 25 or 26 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so still very young. And I was like, Ooh, I really ought to experience taking care of patients that are larger than my feet. Right. And I have tiny feet. You, you're sitting across <laughs> from me. <laughs> so, uh, I'm four nine, everyone listening. So I am, you know, tiny, I have a size five to six shoe. So, uh, they, I really did need to see larger patients. Yeah, um, not the little, little babies. Yeah. So I went to uh, IU Health West uh, and I stayed at IU West for about eight years. Okay. Um, loved my emergency room work. Um, and I had one child, a second child. And while I was pregnant um, with my daughter, I basically started experiencing intrapartum kind of (laughs) or uh, peripartum depression. I'm not sure the terminology for it, but I had some significant mood changes uh, and versus uh, my son, the pregnancy was really difficult. I was Mm. sick a lot. um, And then there were a lot of life changes, period. Uh, my marriage was new, yeah. uh, and we relocated, and a couple of my close friends actually moved out of state. Oh, <laughs> uh, so just a lot of contributing factors there, yeah, and all at once, too. yeah, and I would argue that I never really had addressed my, you know, PTSD essentially from multiple losses that I really was ill prepared for right. coping wise. Right. Uh, so I did what. Uh, more um, nurses do than the average populace because we're comfortable with medications and we have access uh, despite all of our education and what we know. Uh, And then we also, and I say this affectionately for all of my nursing friends (laughs) and myself, we really want to fix everyone. And so we're really good at being okay Mm -hmm. all of the time. Saving face. There it is. Yep. Yep. Um, And, you know, and and it makes sense. Uh, It's very typical of, you know, a lot of just caregiving professions, period. Uh, Social workers, (laughs) all of us. So I was okay and I was okay. And uh, then I basically had spare medication and uh, I started. It, it basically started off with, you know, a penchant just for using it too comfortably if I had a headache. Right. Um, and escalated from there um, to, to, to pretty pretty extreme, to be frank. So yeah. uh, I was forced into help, um, and I was very blessed to have a leader at the time. Um, her name's Jennifer DeGan, and I share that openly. She's a blessing. Um, yeah. And I still send her, you know, uh, whenever I can. Thank you. Uh, and so I made a phone call to her and, um, it was, look, you've been here for years. We love you. I know you're sick. Sure. You know, uh, let's get you help. What a remarkable response for a superior, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I always get a little, she is an extraordinary human being and what an extraordinary policy really, um, to know that, you know, when you have caregivers, uh, you know, they, they knew me well enough to know that something was something off, was you yeah. know, and, and, and in my situation, you, you have a mother and I am, I mean, uh, I, here's, here's a good quote. Every, you know, everyone says that they would die for their children. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one understood why I wasn't living for them. Mm, interesting. And, and yeah, that's powerful. And I think that that's probably how they viewed it. Yeah. Um, and I think that perhaps that I had been there, um, and and I don't want to lie. My appearance probably helps. Um, you know, I'm a tiny woman, right? Um, and I do relate well to patients, and I'm a passionate caregiver. And I think I went into nursing, and it was a a blessing and a curse in that way. Sure. Uh, so 
I think perhaps it did give some people pause uh, to also look at why. Yeah. Um, because you don't look at me, and I'm not the person that you look at when you see in the store with their kids that you think has that history. Right. Um, and and that's okay. I think that's maybe the power in the story. <laughs> part of the power. And I think that's also the power just in both the addiction side and the recovery side is that it's one of the least discriminatory uh, hardships. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it affects everybody. Right. And, you know, and then when I think about professionals, like, you know, almost disproportionately to some degree, it does affect some, um, some pockets. Right. Um, you know, excuse me, research is a little bit scant there obviously but we do know for example that programs to rehabilitate that are focused on um you know uh I would say the whole continuum of services uh you know like as a nurse that went into recovery I had a you know professional recovery support service that program used Mm -hmm. to be Indiana State Nurses Assistance Program right uh, the Indiana Assembly, actually, it's acted into law that a program has to exist for nurses in the 70s, which has been yeah. a, a blessing to our profession. And one of the earliest steps in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, wow, I did talk about admiration for the early, um, the story you can actually read about it, and it, amazing, amazing women that kind of blazed that yeah. that that territory for us. And, and the rest of us have followed. And, of course, the, you know, the politics of, you know, punishment and punitive nature do affect that to some degree but the idea behind it is that that will always be there to support nurses uh, that do enter recovery Mm -hmm. maintaining that and then being able to practice safely you know for the public and it has excellent rates as well as the physician programs you know Mm -hmm. um I think typically physician programs are 80 to 85, and I I believe that the program is similar. Now it's uh, Indiana Professional Recovery Program, or IPRP. I always mess it up. It's (laughs) And the acronym, uh, and they're wonderful as well. I was in the program personally Mm -hmm. at the end of ISNAP and then as it transitioned. uh, And I think uh, a lot of people early in any program, you know, have complaints. Uh, For me, it was a blessing long term as well. Uh, Accountability is a great thing uh, for all of us. And and I uh, I encourage all employers to reach out to them uh, in healthcare, especially during these times. there's a huge pocket of nurses right there that are actually the safest nurses in practice mm-hmm. because they are, you know, GPS tracked that they're going to at least two meetings a week. Right. We know that uh, they start out and the number when I was in was uh, the baseline was 32 to 36 drug tests random yeah. a year, yeah. usually, you know, usually observed <laughs> or at least one observed a month. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything even remotely, if you have two dilutes, they'll send you for a hair test. So, I mean, it is a very very high accountability program and it has great results. Um, so, uh, you know, not to toot their horn, but I think it's a blessing that we have that as an opportunity, you know? So on both sides, I really was supportive. Uh, and, uh, that leader kind of led me into a, a program that, also led me down the path of career. Uh, I had interest in uh, essentially process improvement because uh, way back when the heparin overdoses happened, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of really became interested in you know the human error side of things sure. and how do processes really contribute to people making errors that result in harm? Right. You know, no one is, and you know, especially no one in healthcare, right, and in that situation, ever goes to work wanting to harm a patient. Right. Um, and I know that I know, and I knew those 
women and I still know them and love many of them, you know? Um, and so that always was something that on the side I kind of had worked on as my own processing with that. Sure. And, uh, and, and again, you just have to somehow process that these amazing caregivers made this error. So, uh, process work was always something. It's usually process is not people. Somehow they're being set up for failure. (laughs) And I really came out of recovery wanting to give it back. Um, I knew how lucky I was to have that leader and, uh, the leadership in that hospital Mm -hmm. essentially tolerating me (laughs) (laughs) would be the way that I always phrased it at the time, let alone being supportive. And I did feel like that was an opportunity to try something. Um, what they asked was we want to reduce uh, CHF, uh, congestive heart failure, and okay. COPD, uh, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. We want to in- improve our outcomes there. We want to take better care of them and keep them from coming back to the hospital. Right. And so uh, the leader, Jennifer DeGan, had kind of worked on and ballparked this idea that went through multiple stages to pilot that program. And mm-hmm. uh, I got to come back to work and kind of coordinate finding the patients for it. Yeah. So it was, yeah. And it was a blessing. Um, and the program itself definitely worked. There was a paramedic, uh, that was doing visits, uh, but we found the process work truly was where it was. Yeah. And it, it, and I always say, uh, what I was actually doing back then was care management. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just didn't know it at the time. Uh, it's just the evolution of accountable care and six years ago and who's paying for what. So it was kind of early then. And now it's, uh, could be compared to almost hospital at home that IU health is doing a lot of, uh, there are community paramedicine programs where they're sending out, uh, basically, uh, all kinds of teams, and uh, social workers and nurses. Absolutely. My favorite work there. And actually I think where we could have massive impact is, uh, is the work that they're doing in Marion County with right. the mental health. Uh, so early, you know, and it was mind blowing in those days, but there were just a few pilot cases. So very early, you know, and, and it was amazing, but the process work, uh, was there. Um, and so I got to work with the pulmonologist and the cardiologist, uh, um, again, amazing providers. Yeah. Uh, and I learned so much from all of them. Awesome. Uh, and it was an opportunity for me to return to school. So I went back and got my MBA Good for you. and <laughs> thank you. And then, uh, I decided that, uh, I always, we wanted a third, um, and it was very nerve wracking, but well, honestly, we got a lot of therapists, my addictionists, and quite a few physicians to sign off on that third baby. <laughs> yeah, I was like going in more prepared for yes. whatever might come. Yes, ab- and emotionally, absolutely. Um, having a plan um, and being open about it with everyone, sure. um, educated on you know what medication can I be on. Um, Suboxone was not part of my story. Yeah, uh, and for nurses in Indiana, unless something's changed, they they usually are instructed for an abstinence only program. So Vivitrol is typically uh, the path that I hear a lot of people going down. Right. And it was a part of my story. So I actually stayed on that early in my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. I was doing well in recovery, but uh, my husband and I, again, it was just this psychological comfort at that point. Um, And there wasn't a lot of literature out there, but I was working with Dr. Kelly um, Mm -hmm. and he was comfortable with it. Um, And my OB was Dr. Gallagher, who delivers at uh, IU North. Yeah. And, uh, we, yeah, we were great. So like, uh, we again monitored basically, uh, to the point where, when my depression really escalated with my second pregnancy Mm -hmm. past that point to make sure that I was stable and then had the conversation and that I transitioned off of it. Mm -hmm. I successfully had her via C-section, um, 
did not have to take any narcotics. Yeah, that's great. great. (laughs) And I am not raising the bar for everyone out there, honestly. Um, But for you, that was the right path. Yeah, and I had a plan. I had a great plan, you know, for long acting. I mean, we did all of the great conversations before. uh, And it was mostly, you know, what would the tolerance be? And then at what point, if I decide that I need it, you know, what do we plan on? So essentially going into the hospital was I wanted to avoid IV if at all possible. Sure. Only take long actings if I had to. Mm -hmm. And then we had promised that I would give myself 30 to 45 minutes of no stimulation and no movement, no matter what was going on and, uh, try a, you know, an NSAID. So if I could take Toradol or anything available, sure then um and we never made it even remotely close to that point Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh not even close uh i i would and so uh, i would say that uh i learned that pain is a good thing sometimes for Mm -hmm. healing it was also uh the best recovery of the three i didn't have to take antibiotics for any infections or popped stitches great so uh I well, kind of congratulations. Ta- yeah, and I taught myself a little bit of a lesson there, like sure. pa- pain to some degree. You know, there's too much, and then I think I had you know cheated myself out of pain to some right. degree. And there are ways to manage it effectively yeah. without the use of substance. Yeah, yeah, and I felt really confident about our plan. And then you know, really, if I had to go there, we had it. We had a plan in place, and I would have felt good about it. Just didn't need to. So, right. yeah. So uh, here I am, kind of uh, six years later, and. I love my work and I've been a hiring manager now. Um, yeah. I've, uh, I did population health work after that mm-hmm. and I've been a director of nursing in the recovery world since then. And, uh, uh some of my friends actually are hiring managers. So I've nice. been on both sides of it. Yeah. Uh, I recently have, I'm coming off of a sabbatical, uh, kind of, I, I say air quotes sabbatical. Sure. Uh, I'm, also, uh, kind of adjunct lect or an adjunct lecturer. So I'm, uh, working with IU school of nursing, uh, for site clinicals nice. and they've really been a treat. I love the students. I, yeah. I it was an unexpected pleasure and, uh, I'm going to return to work full time. Uh, so having been on both sides, I thought, Oh, I might be able to share a little bit of my experience there. Absolutely. I mean, you, thank you so much, first of all, for sharing your story. It's just <laughs> such an encouragement to hear. And I know that our listeners will be encouraged by that too, because, I feel like there are so many people, especially in the context of direct care providers that are hiding right now, mm-hmm. you know, they're hiding their struggle right now because of what they feel they owe because of their title or the position. And it's, um, it's refreshing to have your honesty. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I, it, it, I, I, I think that uh, especially once we crossed that barrier for me, I felt like I broke the trust. Sure. Anyone listening is like, oh, yeah, it's right. like there's this un- and it's not unspoken. It's a trust, you know, and and uh, we're not always good at being kind to ourselves. But mm-hmm. especially with COVID in the last couple of years, I would argue uh, recovering loudly feels important to right. me. Um, and early on, and I didn't have to share it with anyone. Um, and now I'm almost proud when the opportunity arises. Be. Yeah. I don't want to just, you know, sh- I do sometimes just want to shout it from the rooftops, but right. it, it's not the first thing that I want everyone to know about me. Of course. Um, because it is a part of my story, but I also feel like I want to recover loudly because nurses need to know and everyone needs to know that these terrible things that happen to us aren't us. Right. And, you know, that we can 
recover. We do. We're out here. Recovery's and possible. yeah, in every field. And I, I worry so much about our caregivers uh, because there's just so much guilt on what we could do, what we couldn't do, what we sure. are capable of handling mentally at this point. It's just, it's very deep and icky. <laughs> right. And uh, the, the last thing I would want is for anyone to think that they're alone in that struggle or it makes them bad. Right. Um, because... I really, I really, I think for me, a lot of why I didn't reach out for the help that I knew was available was the stigma that was there. Yes. And, uh, and it wasn't even that, you know, it, it, yeah, it's just there. Uh, I, I would say that even I stigmatize, you know, I, I was, Sometimes we do I was guilty. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I still do assault like my cogn- my, my own kind of biases and, and, uh, what is my, what is it that I have going on with this cognitive bias today? Right. <laughs> All of the time. There's always something that's unconscious, but. So let's dive into that a little bit then. Yeah. I want to dive into to a little bit of some of the stigma that exists, particularly from yeah. an HR and employment mm-hmm. perspective. Um, I mean, not everybody has the blessing of, you know, a really supportive direct supervisor who can help us get the help we need. And so we end up getting out of work or if those who need to go to an inpatient facility or residential for a certain amount of mm-hmm. weeks or months, um, there's these massive gaps on their resume. So right. if you could give us some practical advice here, how would a listener positively yet honestly represent those gaps on their resume and their work history when they're preparing to go back to work in the same way that you have recently? Right. So, uh, I've shared a lot lately. <laughs> so, uh, I would say first and foremost, and this is very ambivalent, especially, you know, by airwaves, but uh, you definitely can read the room when you get there. You, mm-hmm. you know, do your background on that employer as you are applying. Um, as someone with mental illness and, you know, and honestly in recovery, I usually check the place out before uh I want to ask my peers what are good places you know so that that usually helps me I I have might avoid some really negative work experiences yeah you know uh and and that's the thing and it it's and it's just there are some places that are more pro and some that aren't Mm -hmm. and and that also can affect how you share you know there is no right or wrong and I think that I've across my, you know, recovery in six years, it's changed for me. Initially, I didn't want to share it. And it was so hard. I was more nervous going into interviews about sharing that piece of my history, you know, like, yes, and I didn't have that blank. But in monitoring, I needed to share that. And so it was it was definitely the elephant in the room that I wasn't going to avoid just like any work, you know, work gap or, uh, any, any criminal history to, to relate it to that, that too. too. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and, and it's comparable basically, sure. uh, even though I, you know, was blessed to avoid the actual legal system, uh, it, it, to, you know, an employer, uh, uh, there are people that won't hire nurses that are in monitoring or have any restrictions. So, right. um, for me, it was, you know, who is this employer and do I know them? Do I know who I am actually interviewing with? Sure. And it depends on the role that you're looking, you know, is it a basic role? You may not be able to look up someone's LinkedIn and see really what, what are they, what are they about? What are they posting? Sure. Are they very, you know, pro mental health? Do I feel like they would understand it? Do they maybe have a story of their own mm-hmm. that somewhere, you know, along the course of this interview, it, it may feel comfortable. Yeah. I have found that, um, in like half of the interviews that I've done in recovery, I have found a way to share my story or bits and pieces of it, yeah. uh, to my comfort by, 
making it relate to something that they have asked me or something that they have said that I could use as a keyword. Right. <laughs> uh, so finding that connection point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like where, you know, and, and in nursing and, and in a lot of caregiving roles, I think it's easy because you, you know, to some degree that you're more likely to meet someone that relates to it as a disease process. Right. Uh, and then the rest is what, what do you have to share? Um, and I always focus on that, you know, you, knowing uh, they don't exactly post things for one uh, when I've hired people they don't know interviewing what are the parameters on convictions within this many years right. so what I, those conversations don't happen until after a really solid interview exactly a check and then you're screwed right and then it's like now I've wasted everybody's time and and then it just really makes you feel bad right. you know so if it any way if in any way possible reach a recruiter before okay. um, a recruiter or, you know, someone that knows the policy at the application site. Mm-hmm. Now it sounds impossible, but you know, way to do that. And I think of like big hospital systems, you know, community health, call the general number, you know, and just inquire at their offices. They have a lot of openings. Say, what are their parameters? You know, I I'm looking for a second chance employer. Yeah. Use that terminology. Second chance employer. And then actually on that note, find a second chance employer. And I, I kind of dislike, um, it all, I, I dislike the terminology a little bit because yeah. It, uh, second chance employer almost, it is your second chance, but also, uh, I feel like it leaves it open to service abuse to some degree. Mm, um, like yeah. you're welcome for this job. You know, you're, it's still an employee employer contract, right? but you know, but since it's almost, there's a power dynamic at play, right? This employer <laughs> is giving you the second chance. So you owe your life right work life, work life balance and right you know, quality of life to us. <laughs> right like just remember that no matter what it's a contract you know right. on both sides so you know but there are people that you know use a second chance employer is a great tagline so that you can find people that are more you know more pro people that are in recovery or more mm. you more open to you know those conversations about mental health you know um my my younger sister is a lawyer my older sister as a nurse like me. Okay. Um, and, you know, our mental health, of course, has been across the continuum. Sure. Older sister has struggled like me um, openly and has better days and years. And me too, <laughs> like so many of us, right? right? And then my younger sister um, has probably, I would argue, learned more coping skills probably from our rough lessons. Mm. Um, and she's a blessing as well, but she's a lawyer in California. Yeah. So when I have these conversations with her and her background is the complete opposite of mine, you know, she's says sometimes you don't want to lead with that and you want to make that bond first because the thing is until someone meets you all they're going to see is that you fell down not that you stood back up Mm, that's interesting so i was like requiring the employer to build some relational equity first before you share every detail yeah and i think that i think that that is on both sides you know you you know um you don't owe it to someone to tell them your life story as soon as you meet them. But also on the other hand, you know, hopefully if it's the right place for you during your interview process, which would probably be with your peers and your direct supervisor, ideally it would feel like you can share that, you know? Yeah. Um, because, uh, again, over my six years, I've had a couple leaders too. Uh, 
I don't ever want to place myself under a leader that isn't supportive of my mental health, my work-life balance, me using my time off, you know, for that time with my family. And I think that as desperate as we can be early in recovery to to get back out there, um, you know, it's conscious to be aware of that too, you know, um, in the long run, you're going to be happy. Right. <laughs> you don't, you don't want that boss either, but the, you will, um, yeah, it'll feel right. Let's, let's say the listeners is sitting in the interview chair right now. Yeah. And maybe they've done the research and they, they're on the fence. This, this employer shares some things during mental health and recovery awareness months, but otherwise they're pretty quiet about these issues. And this is a direct care position, or maybe it's not, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just it's just some other like an administrative role. What what questions, especially hard questions, should I anticipate this employer asking me about either my criminal history or gaps in my resume if it comes up? Okay, well, and uh, when that happens to me, they literally just ask. <laughs> I mean, just super straightforward, very very directly. Yeah, um, you know, and I have when I've had people going, "Do you have any charges? Yeah. Are they pending? Are are they convicted? What is the timeline?" Um, almost better than beating around the bush. I think it really is. Well, and it's easier, you know. Like I just uh, that's the thing. Uh, once we get to that point, I would just want to know if I can actually hire you. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and then, so that's why I said it saves you some comfort if you can get that information beforehand. Right. But also, it's good practice. Yeah. <laughs> so, exact there, you know, be prepared to just answer it as best as you can. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I, I literally share that, you know, uh, my last position didn't work out exactly as I thought that it was going to. It wasn't a failure, on, I don't feel like on my part, and there were definitely lessons that I'm taking away sure. that I know will help me build my future and make me, you know, a better teammate and leader, hopefully. Well, that was also well said. I know. <laughs> uh, talk about, yeah, about a, a little bit, all okay. of the above, you know, everything in life you can wordsmith, you right. know, and it's just like, you know, there's something positive, you know, even things that don't, and most of my life has not. <laughs> It worked out as I planned, sure. you know, and um, that may that be higher power, you know, more will be revealed, mm-hmm. but it's, it does feel like there's, there's a path one way that even if it didn't work out and you have this gap, you can say, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't. And so for me, I didn't know what to do. So when you don't know what to do, sometimes you just take time to see what excites you or what's available or to check out who you might like working with, you know. I feel like that kind of honesty almost says more about the character of a person than someone just like making some BS up, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I would totally like as as an employer, I'm like, oh, I'll take that person, you know? Um, And I do think that for some, you know, it is limiting to some degree. I mean, I honestly wouldn't. I would be, well, I wouldn't say wouldn't, but I would be hesitant to hire someone with that story into like an extreme leadership role, obviously. But uh, for most of our audience, that's not, you know, we're not talking about like that kind of CEO level thing. Yeah. I mean, so it's, 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 and, and we're not even for me. Um, so it is okay to kind of hear sometimes, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I've had some bumps in the road. So instead of just, you know, throwing myself in there blindly, this happened, this happened, and this has been my process. Now I'm here and I know this is what I want to do. Right. This is what I'm doing for myself. And I think that transparency 
as at least for me as a hiring manager, I I loved it. Yeah. Because I know what to do with that. I know how to support you, you know. Um, and and honestly, if you don't know that someone's struggled in the past, I'm not gonna know how to look out for you now so that I can take care of you as as a leader. Right. <laughs> you yeah, know. That's so important. I feel like uh, that wordsmithing point that you brought up plays yeah. a, an even bigger role here. Um, for those who are, you know, especially active members of the recovery community, there are different like. Um, I guess, areas and sectors of language usage, mm-hmm. right? In, in the treatment industry side, the re- side that I would represent, we we use person-first language. We use very intentional anti-stigmatizing language. Mm-hmm. In the 12-step communities, that's not always true, mm-hmm. right? And that's just part of the culture, and, and I'm not going to say that's good or bad one way or another. But what, in your experience, especially from someone who's been a leader within HR, what type of language should someone use to represent themselves when they are starting to tell bits of their story? Let's say it is a safe place. They feel like they can share mm-hmm. while well, I was going through this dark time or whatever. Should they use words like addict, alcoholic? Should they go more of the clinical route? Like what, what would you recommend using language wise? Uh, <laughs> so as far as uh, details and language, what I recommend to everyone, unless you have a really, you know, uh, The exception would be a leader like me. Mm I am in recovery and every single time that someone has felt like they were going to self-disclose something, I just share that right off the bat so that I can make them comfortable. Right. Like you're, it it just feels like the nice. The ideal situation. It it just feels like the right thing to do. So yeah. So to be fair, as a hiring leader, I try to make it very easy for you. Like, you know, whatever this gap is, you really aren't going to tell me anything that is going to embarrass you more than, or be worse than anything I've done. That's usually the terms that I use specifically. Um, So there's, and it's a shame-free room, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, this is a shame-free room and I am a vault in that instance. Um, So I would say that depending on, you know, that setting, but I would use generally minimally descriptive words um, because those details are yours to share. And I don't use, you know, I wouldn't say use clinical terms, you know, Um, I would say I'm a person in long-term sobriety, Mm. (laughs) you know, and, and any other extension or verbiage behind that is your comfort. You know, Um, I think that a lot of people know what long-term sobriety is. And a lot of people make assumptions based off of that. Sure. And I, I'm not going to say whether it's right or wrong, but it depends on who, when you look at, you know, long-term sobriety to, you know, Chase's mental picture is different than what it is for Rachel's, than right. it is for, and I'm just, you know, going to say some, stare, the, you know, middle-aged white man that right. I may be interviewing with, or, you know, a... 30-year-old, uh, you know, black female entrepreneur that I'm, inter- you know, interviewing with. Yeah, everybody's going to bring a different set of biases and assumptions right. to that conversation like, when you use the word sobriety. What long-term sobriety means to them, you know, is going to be a picture in their mind that they associate with that is probably the most comfortable to them. Right. <laughs> and so that's why I say use, you know, if you don't know what to do, use the least descriptive termino- terminology possible, you know, right. and the same with with your criminal history. You know, you do obviously have to be upfront to a point. Sure. And the details of that, you know what will be available to them publicly and not, but you only have to share what you're comfortable sharing with that. And so my default is person in long-term sobriety yeah, <laughs> and recovery. 
I love recovery and I love the term, mm-hmm. but I also think in their mind, in an interview, it, it um, infers that you were still recovering from something. Mm-hmm. And so I just wordsmith it so that I'm a person in a state. Right. And not, <laughs> a, you know, not everybody who's not either in or adjacent to the recovery community even understands what recovery means. Exactly. It's also used, especially from a healthcare standpoint, to describe like physical recovery and physical therapy. No, exactly. Yeah. Like you're in recovery from what? Everyone knows what long-term sobriety sobriety is. But not like so self-disclosive. Right. Like that, you know, that you're, you're, you know, taking that person in a place where they're, you know, you might not be comfortable taking them yet. Yeah, and well, and I feel like when I've when I've used that term, it generally, you know, it, when I was in monitoring and I interviewed, I I had to share. And then when I was done with the nurse recovery program, I did not. Okay. So I've kind of walked on both sides. Sure. Uh, and I would say that using that terminology when I did share it really has, and and I've shared it every time at this point. Honestly, sure. yeah. I I. I choose to, <laughs> yeah. um, but I would say that that has always opened up to questions mm-hmm. that I then felt comfortable and I could kind of read their, uh, kind of impression of it. Yeah. Like what uh, questions are they asking? <laughs> correct. <laughs> like, uh, well, you know, and I mean, one person was like, oh yeah, well I have a friend, you know, and then it makes it much more, okay. I have a, fr- ice you know, is broken. Yeah. And a lot of, and, and you'll find that a lot in, and with healthcare providers, like somebody knows someone and they'll probably. speaking, all of us know someone who's it, affected by addiction. <laughs> that is very, yeah, we all do. And, and it's just an icebreaker, you know, and very rarely I, it is not stuck out. It's not coming to mind now anyways, that anyone has even been sobriety from what exactly? Right. I mean, I don't not think. probing too deeply. No, like I, I mean, it's not even popping to mind that anyone even probed deeply there. I mm-hmm. think it just stayed in it like that kind of gave me a read to, and, and then just like that, I think it broke the ice. Yeah. Um, and there was one, there was one job that I took that, you know, I never, um, I had, uh, I didn't share it in the interview process and I never did share it. And, you know, my reflection was there's do what's right for you. Obviously I do have to say that it, in one of the questions, I, uh, I don't mean it as a negative way, but I don't know, um, that I wouldn't have been stigmatized. So I just, I didn't have to, so I didn't. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think that I was correct uh, in doing that in reflection, but I will say that from that experience, I will never do that again. Yeah. Uh, just to me, um, it it wasn't the world or anything. Um, sure. It's something that I have grown um, proud of. And while I don't, you know, always, hi, I'm Rachel, and you know, it's not like when I introduce myself at a at meeting, a meeting yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. The world is not your meeting. Right. Um, but it, you know, it is something that. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of, and I, I don't necessarily just, it made it feel like a thing for me, sure. and I didn't want it to be, you know? So what if what if I do get stigmatized in during this interview? Like, What happens if maybe I misread the room or the personality of whoever's interviewing me, and they, you know, they, they say something like, oh, so you were a junkie back in the day. Ah. I love right? it. Oh, like, I hate that word. Oh, I hate it too. Um, but like, let's say that happens. Like, what do I do now? Do I just walk up and leave that interview? Like, okay, I I'm I'm leaning here. Go with the flow, and that is I hate that word. I hate it a variety of ways. But I take the power back when people do stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I was the worst junkie of all of them. Hmm. But look at me. Yeah. 
I mean, and that sounds. Take their stigma and turn it. I do. I do because it doesn't sound. It doesn't sound dirty rolling off of anyone's tongue when they just use it to no one. Right. But then, then when you say, "Yeah, I was a, I was a junkie. I was a junkie six years ago. Absolutely. Hmm. But I'm not now. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of, kind of take it and turn it. And I think truly that people use the word junkie and they don't even realize how negative a connotation that is. I don't think, you know, and that's why I'm like, turn it around and just smile. Like, yes, yes, I was. And now I'm not. We do recover. Right. <laughs> I, that's, and I'm also walking out of this interview with very valuable information about who you are. Correct. <laughs> correct. And that's the thing. And then you have a choice to make. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's what I say. You know, I think um, I think that I would have, you know, and and that's why I say I to everyone you have to do what you have to do Mm -hmm. and you know each person is not in their own situation and so I I don't want to you know tell our listeners out here that I I don't have a little bit of privilege because I have been a nurse and so I I was blessed with you know more I am blessed with resources and I've had reliable work since I graduate you know and I can't even imagine that anyone listening or not anyone but most people listening have a comparable situation and that's the whole point we aren't all the same but I had those resources and so I could walk away from some jobs. Right. You know, I had that option. And when you don't, it really stinks, Mm -hmm. you know? And so that's why we say it's up to you. Share as little or as much. You know, legally speaking, you really, the bare minimum is what you need to share. And if someone's going to stigmatize you, hopefully you won't have to work for them. And if you have to work for them, just remember that more will be revealed and that you just have to keep on doing what you're doing. Right. And, you know, something better is going to present because of that. Mm-hmm. I know that that sounds like silly and faith-based. Um, yeah, but persistence is definitely a key to recovery. It really <laughs> is. I mean, one way or another, like that first job, even if it's a terrible job somewhere everywhere that they know that, it, you know, people know it's got this horrible reputation, you know. Yeah, hey, man, if you can grin and bear it and pay your bills for six months there, yeah. you look like a boss on your resume six months later exactly. when you go somewhere else that's maybe going to be more willing to give you a chance because you stayed sober there and you you worked in that challenging environment. So good for you. It's a practical stepping stone. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so while it's not ideal, but I, I would say that, if you are stigmatized, unless it's one of those very, 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 you know, singular situations, step away. We can, you know, your use, use your rooms, right. <laughs> use your therapy, use, you know, like here at the Willow Center. You guys probably are familiar with a couple people that are more likely, you know, oh, or a whole list. Exactly. Of, uh, quote unquote, second chance. Employees. Yep. And we know like business owners that, you know, are in long term recovery or early. There are different places where if you are you know in recovery and you want to work in recovery you can go you know we're kind of hidden everywhere like the the, like even nurses like me like we're we're kind of we're leading in different you know different health net we just don't really scream it and so it's more like you know there and then caricious meetings are kind of a beast of their own to find right but there is a meeting with about 100 nurses in the state of indiana and if we know and someone can, you know, it's always stay online afterwards and we'll share resources. Right. So the rooms and, and then those networks. Yes. Yes. I mean, they I give that advice to you when you're graduating college anyways, like work your network. Like it still applies. It's just a different network. It's a recovery it, network. Exactly. And I mean, I'm trying to think why, like one of, one of the, um, one of the guys that I worked with, uh, 
during my time at my last job was just amazing. It was about a year out in recovery and was working there at that point in, in recovery. But I think he said that he had gotten his first job at like Jimmy John's and sure. it was someone, you know, I, we're everywhere. Right. <laughs> so work the network and someone will hopefully be able to squeeze you in somewhere. And then the network truly helps you a lot if you have right issues even because a lot of those hiring people know, right. um, you know, so they're, they're the resources you need when you need them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience. Yeah. This Thank you for so having me. Absolutely. <laughs> if you could give any just final words of advice to a listener, what would it be? Oh, goodness. <sighs> I guess uh, trying to think with work. Don't. Well, no, this is just in general. Here we okay. go. Remember that no one hates you as much as you hate yourself. Mm. Don't give them that much credit. That was probably my biggest barrier to getting help and to essentially success in any way I was just always convinced that like the world would dislike me yeah there was something defective there's you know and I think a lot of us feel like that um it's a common you know uh and the thing is is uh I was so scared about telling everyone like anything what had I done what what was my past that I didn't realize that sharing that story and stopping that self-hatred would really allow other people to love me and then right. I would be useful to other people. Right. Um, I definitely am not doing a whole lot of things right in life, but I definitely know that sharing my story has helped at least one person. Right. So I was probably worth saving. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I so, love that. Should've... Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. All right, y'all. That's been episode eight, explaining addiction history to employers. Uh, next month in October, we're going to be talking about nutrition and exercise for episode nine, and how that uh, affects our bodies in particular after uh, several years of, of alcohol or drug use. So tune in for that. My name is Chase Cotton. I'm the community director here at the Willow Center in Brownsburg, Indiana. I've been your host of the Uniquely Better Life podcast. We'll catch you next month.